no lasso. So it really kind of feels like we're in the last week, doesn't it? So people's minds, I think, are already in transition, even if the bodies aren't quite, quite yet in motion, out from the center of the mind. And it will be very easy, if it's not already begun, it will be very easy over the coming days to feel, oh, my shamatha practice is really deteriorating, falling apart. OCDD is coming in like a torrent. What to do? All that F7 weeks, 8 weeks of effort down the tubes. Nothing to show for it. I'll come home and my spouse, my friends will say, oh, how's your level of samadhi? Well, you should have asked me three weeks ago, on Tuesday, in the afternoon. <laughs> there was a good day. <laughs> so it's going to be very easy. It's been all easy all the way along to evaluate our practice, how it's going, hedonically. How's it turning out? How was that session? How was that session? Any bliss coming up? Any quiet? Any blah blah blah? One can do that, and it's frankly, it's self-defeating. And I, I, I know a lot of mature Dhamma practitioners, none of them do that. None of them do that. Mm-hmm. We're all bound to do it on occasion. But it is just overwhelmingly more important to be asking an entirely different question. And as given in, given the circumstances that you're, you're finding yourself in, towards the end of an eight-week retreat, the first week of coming back to wherever you're going back to, and so forth, given the circumstances, your health. So if your dentures have just broken, that'll be distracting. Right? If you've just fallen into a hole and damaged your ankle, that'll be distracting. Right? If you've just had some food problems. Last retreat, I had some horrendous digestive problems right towards the end. I had to go to the doctor. I had to get antibiotic. That's distracting. You know? So whatever it is, it's bound to st- stuff coming up. Or sometimes, oh, we had one person in, the, I think it was the first retreat. He came here, full intention to really devote himself to practice, and I think it was one or two weeks into the retreat, there was some major financial deal he had to attend to. It was his whole career. And so he was heading off once a week to go to a hotel and be bum, 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 working away on his, on his business, you know, and then coming back. But he kind of had to do it. You know, that happens. So the question that I think is most fruitful to ask is given the circumstances that rose up to meet me, given the level of OCD, given the level of what's happening, how is my response? In other words, that's something we have control over. Right? The other stuff, falling into a hole, not falling into a hole, and so forth and so on, not a whole lot of control. Right? Or people, I know this happened to a number of you, people phoning you from from home, Emailing you from home. This crisis has happened. This well, we need. Please phone back. Boom, boom, boom. You don't. You can't control that, right? So, given all the stuff that we can't control, one is what is one of the few things we can? Well, how about this for a familiar refrain? How are we responding to it? We really have some influence over that. You know? At least the possibility for making wise choices. So it'll be very easy, especially when we've gone back wherever we're going to be in a situation where there's just so much going on. Maybe maybe someone will throw a party for you and have 20 friends coming over. Welcome home. How's your shamatha? Yeah, how did your shamatha go? How'd your shamatha go? Is it going really well? Tell us, tell us right now, real quick. And we're watching television, but during the ad, tell us about, you know, and 
Voodoo, like that. So, how are we responding to it? It always boils down to that. Over the last seven weeks or so, our, our practice may have been a little bit like sweet street, street, street sweepers. Street sweepers. Right? Sweeping the mind. Cleansing the mind. So, the dust of excitation comes in, the dust of laxity comes in, and we sweep away session by session. Four hours, six hours, eight hours a day. Sweeping, sweeping the, the pathways of the mind. Trying to get nice and big and span, right? I thought of a metaphor or an analogy from my own personal history in this regard. When I was a, a rather small boy, maybe eight, nine years old, my family lived in Southern California, right at the base of some quite rugged and high mountains, quite wild, right at the base of them. And uh, so I don't think there were street sweepers, but there could have been. It was a big oval road, went down, little these little houses around it. And so imagine there were imagine there were street sweepers that would come in once a week and make the streets nice and spick and span, nice and clean, Southern California, as if we're living in Switzerland. Then one year when I was there, there was this vast forest fire, terrible forest fire, and it just burned off the mountains, just burnt them to a crisp. It was a big forest fire. We had to evacuate from our house. It was very close, a few hundred yards, a few hundred meters away, so very, very close. They put out the fire, and then, very shortly after the fire, burnt off all the side of the mountain, up to maybe 2,000 feet, 2,000 meters. Very shortly after the fire, torrential rains came. Big rains came. And the mud just flowed down from the mountain, right? And so on our street, there was like half a meter of mud. So, and we had to evacuate anyway, but you, you really couldn't get a car through there. Well, imagine if the city had said, well, you know, we do street sweeping, but that mud, that's really yucky. And we don't do that kind of thing. That's just disgusting. So deal with it. We're going to find another neighborhood that has dust. And we will deal with the mud. Good luck with that. It's very easy when we go back having swept our minds for eight weeks and then go back and find a torrent of mud flowing into the mind of OCD and the mind scattered about the future and the past and emotions about this, that, and the other thing and and feeling, ah, that's about a half meter of mud in my mind. I can't meditate. What's on television? Hey, how about go to the movie? I've, some re- I've missed a whole bunch of movies for the last two months. All the good movies I've missed. Let's go, because I can't meditate. I check my mind. It's awful. <laughs> so, let's go to a movie. And after that, let's go out and let's go dancing and maybe some drinking and then come home and watch television until we just pass out. Because <laughs> I just can't deal with that mind. And so, that's a possibility. You know? Of course, the city came through. But you can imagine when they first came through and these great big scrapers scraping off that, all that mud when they finished, it wasn't nearly as nice as the street sweeper just having swept a whole bunch of dust off. Because it's still muddy, right? But then slowly, slowly, then of course it gets out. So the real question is, given the quality of your mind at any given point, what can you do to improve it? Rather than giving up. Because it's very, very easy to think, oh, I tried meditating this morning, I just couldn't do it. 
I just couldn't do it. My mind was so scattered, I couldn't do it. So I gave up. And I read People magazine to find out who is the most <laughs> handsome man on the planet now. <laughs> she knows. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> so I'll just kill time because I can't stand. I'll just get my mind off my mind. I'll go as far away from the center of the mind as possible. Out to People magazine. Oh, yes, that's very far from my mind. So it'll be very easy to do that. But then, again, here's your closest companion, closer, closer than your spouse, your children, your brother, sister, family, and so forth. Your closest companion is your mind. And so do you want to have a good neighbor or a bad neighbor? Right? So to be applying skillful means, I think it's enormously important, as, strong, as strongly as I have emphasized the, more, the importance of shamatha, which of course I did this morning again, do it all over the place, as strongly as I've emphasized the importance of shamatha, and I think with good reason, it's also enormously important not to equate your dharma practice or even your meditative practice with shamatha. It's extremely important, you know, because it's way too narrow, way, way, way too narrow. So, for most of us, we'll be going from here to not solitary retreat, to something else, right? So for as long as that's the case, that we're engaging in, at least to some extent, a socially active way of life, dealing with different demands at our time, and so forth. Shamatha is certainly a very valuable element of daily meditative practice. And I, you know, you don't need me to elaborate on that. So there's the shamatha. But in addition to that, now as kind of like a Dharma nutritionist, um, there are two other basic food groups, right? Shamatha is often overlooked. That's why I just keep on banging away at it for the last 30 years. Shamatha is really important because so many people skip it, misunderstand it, or marginalize it. And so therefore I try to, you know, emphasize it. Um, but there's one basic food group. But another basic food group that I think really is good every single day, that to some whatever to whatever extent we can, given how much time we can allocate to formal Dharma practice, each day to devote some time to the cultivation of insight, I'm going to put this all in one bundle, insight, wisdom, knowledge, understanding that's relevant to our spiritual practice. In other words, not just learning, you know, who is the runner-up for the most handsome man in the world. That is knowledge, but not much to gain from that. So, insight, understanding, knowledge, wisdom, and that can come through reading. So you may find, okay, if you've got two hours of formal practice that you can time for formal practice every day, I think it'd be a real serious mistake to devote two hours of that to Shamat. I really think. Really imbalanced. You only have two hours of formal practice, give it all the shamatha, bad investment. So maybe half an hour for reading. Or maybe some type of vipassana practice, or mahamudra, dzogchen, or zazen practice, whatever it may be. But something specifically for wisdom practice. And that can include reading. Now, I'm sure you'll recall those couple of days, two or three days I think it was, that I took basically about a page from the Vajra Essence. You recall, I'm sure distinguishing between this and that. Read through it slowly, unpacked it a little bit. We could have spent a lot more time, but we just one page or a couple of times it was just a verse from a couple of verses from the Dhammapada. But bringing it to attention, focusing on it, unpacking it a bit. So we the Christians have a Christians and Jews have a wonderful tradition of this. They call it contemplation. Contemplating their scriptures. You know, it's a wonderful tradition. They do it 
apart from that, and you know, a lot of my family members are devout Christians. My grandmother, I remember, and so forth and so on. And so they would go back and reread and reread and reread passages from the Scripture, and can continue to find greater meaning from it, drawing from it, and so forth and so on. And that's that's true for religious traditions: the Hindu, the Taoist, the the Muslim, and so forth and so on. That you keep on going back to it, and you keep on drawing more and more insight and understanding blessings from it. But apart from Dharma, that doesn't happen much, I think. But where are we really encouraged to read slowly and reflectively and weave into our lives and our way of thinking whatever we're reading about? I don't recall ever having that ever happen in all of the formal Western education I had. And I've had it in, in science, philosophy, and religious studies. So I had kind of a good bandwidth. But no one, no one ever said, oh, now here when you're reading this, read it very, very slowly and reflect upon it and weave it into your life. It doesn't come up. No, it's information, you deal with it, you process it, you regurgitate it, whatever. And so contemplative reading, reading slowly. I've seen, if I may, I've seen Chris doing this a lot. Because I'm, I'm sure when you're reading, when you're bringing out the text, you're not whipping through it for data collection. I'm sure not. No, he's reading it like a very thoughtful and reflective person, going through it slowly and then, you know, weaving it in, weaving it in. So that's contemplative reading, and that can be really one of the best ways to deepen one's understanding, to start shifting one's way of viewing reality, re-envisioning how we can engage with the people in our lives, and so forth. So something for wisdom. Shamatha, of course, to make your mind serviceable. So when you're reading, you're actually reading and not just having your mind wander. And then, of course, something for the heart. And whatever it is, whatever it is, whether it's the four immeasurables, whether it's bodhicitta, it's guru yoga, it's taking refuge, practicing tonglen, there's such a range. Some devotional, devotionally oriented, others more, how do you say, horizontally oriented, simply out to our fellow sentient beings. But something for the heart to bring some moisture, some warmth, some kind of light to the practice. So it's not all just sheer discipline, discipline, discipline. So to, to my mind, in terms of meditative practice, those three, that pretty well comprises a balanced diet. Shamatha for assimilation, making mind serviceable, and then wisdom and compassion. And there we are. So, has anyone here not heard the parable of the elephant and the cat? Does that not ring a bell? Okay, that's enough. <laughs> the other ones, you're just going to have to hear it again. It's a good one. It's from the Buddha himself. And that is, a number of you have mentioned to me that either in the near future or at some time when the time is right, you really would like to go back and have a more extensive retreat, whether it's one month, three months, going off to a two-year, or, you know, going off until you achieve shamatha. So a number of you have mentioned to me, and it makes me, very, of course, very happy. Uh, happy in the sense that that implies to me that you found this time meaningful, helpful, and you're not burnt out and thinking, boy, this is my last long retreat. <laughs> you know? So I'm very happy with that. Uh, that you got so inspired that you would like to continue on and perhaps have some longer retreats in the future. Very, very good. But for the meantime, many of you have obligations you must fulfill. You're not ready to go off for very, for very good reasons. Not because you're lazy or renunciation isn't strong enough, but for very good reasons. Commitments. Having small children is an extremely good reason, but also making, making a living and so forth. We have commitments. I too. I, I can't right now go off on a long-term retreat. Actually, I'm now kind of massaging the next coming months, so I will be able to go into a long-term retreat. 
uh, not too long from now. I'm working it because I'm just getting too hungry to not to allow more time to pass without just going into total solitude and spending some time trying to purify this this mind with its half meter of mud just flowing through. So then as we anticipate, well, one day when the time is ripe, I'd really like to go into maybe another Shamatra retreat, Shamatra Vipassana, who knows what. In that regard, it's very, very important not simply to, to adopt an attitude of waiting I have to wait until my kids grow up, or I have to wait until I retire, I have to wait until I earn enough money, I have to wait until Alan finally gets his act together and they've got the contemplative observatory up, you know, someplace. When, how, how long is it going to take? Not having an attitude of waiting. Life is much too short, and it may be much shorter than we think. Never can tell. And so in this regard, the Buddha gave a wonderful metaphor. Once you've heard it, you won't forget it. It's such a nice one. And that is the metaphor of the elephant and the cat. And the metaphor goes it was a hot, sultry day in India. Burning hot. Ass scorching. And an elephant is walking along and it's just miserable. Just burning up. Walking through the jungle. Just one very unhappy elephant. Plodding along. Oh man, it's hot. Oh man, it's hot. Oh man, it's hot. You know how elephants do. And then, going through the jungle, he finds this deep pool of water all in the shade. And it's a nice deep pool. And, he's, oh, Lord. and he comes jogging over towards the pool and jumps into it. The, pool, the water comes all the way up to its neck. And it's just cool and refreshing. And he's got, of course, this great hose on the top, on the front of his face. And he splashes his head. And he's just one happy elephant. Just Oh, happy days. Not that. So, one very happy elephant. So, that's first half of the story. You know the next half of the story not going to be nearly so nice. The cat. <coughs> I don't think cats can sweat. I don't think so. So, a cat's walking along through the jungle. It's the same day. The cat is just burning up, sweltering hot. One very unhappy cat. Walking along. Just as miserable as the elephant was. The cat's walking through the jungle, and then he sees this incredibly happy elephant spraying himself with this nice cool water. And the cat says, oh boy, yeah. And he comes running over to the pond and jumps into the pond. Unfortunately, the cat's experience of the pond is utterly different than that of the elephant. Because the, the pond is like eight feet deep, and the cat's this deep. And so there's only one of two things that happens to the cat. It either flounders around on the surface, thrashing, 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 or else it tires out and it sinks like a stone and drowns. But it's not big enough to enjoy that nice deep pool that the elephant could so enjoy. So it either thrashes on the surface or it drowns. It sinks. So the Buddha gave this as an analogy for those, some who go into retreat with their minds balanced, well-prepared, motivation, ethics, all of that. Those, For example, those five qualities, contentment, having few desires, and so forth and so on. They go into retreat and they revel in the retreat. One friend of mine who was very well-prepared went into about a nine-month retreat a couple of years back. When he came out, this happy smile on his face, he said it was like a river of gold. So he was an elephant. You know, in his mind, nine months of solitude, 
Start spraying stuff. Oh, enjoying that one. Oh, I've known a number of people over the years going to retreat. Oh, so difficult. The mind is so restless as they go into solitude, same type of cabin, out in the country, nice and quiet, good food, all of that, all the external is good. But then they get there and the mind is so restless and so agitated. And then they try harder. And the mind is still agitated. They try harder. And then they start getting really flights of fantasy about the future and the past. And they thrash you around the surface of the mind. Like the cat. All agitation. I can't get my mind to calm down. And they thrash around, thrash around, thrash around. Very restless, very unhappy. And other ones, they just sink like a stone. And they just get bored. They get heavy. They get depressed. They get tense. They start getting headaches. Oh. My mind was, my retreat was like a river of lead. You know? So they either fall into laxity and dullness, or they fall into excitation agitation. So, the moral of that story then is that as you anticipate the possibility of having a month, three months, six months, a year, ten years, lifelong retreat, whatever it may be, to really do, to take advantage every single day prior to that point, prior to the, to the mandala of your life forming so now all the, all the lights are green and you can perceive full ahead. To take advantage of every single day and now this is insider terminology, to take advantage of every day prior to going into retreat to morph from a cat to an elephant. Okay? That's now our insider terminology. Are you morphing from a cat to an elephant? Yeah, genetic mutation? Okay. Because that's the challenge. That's the challenge. Simply going into retreat, no guarantee. While in retreat, it's very easy to let the retreat just be driven, motivated, pushed by sheer desire, motivation, aspiration, discipline, discipline, discipline. And get very heavy. And even when one starts feeling really tight, and I've had this experience, start feeling really tight, really driven, really heavy, feeling, and I'll relax. Watch my facial expression. I'm going to really relax. I will relax. I'll relax if it kills me. I will do it. I'm going to do it two hours a day. If that doesn't work, I'm going to do it for four hours a day. Is my fish really ugly now? I'm going to do it for six. If, as long as it is. You know, it's just, it's all discipline. Where's the joy? Where's the lightness? Where's the lightness? Where's the enthusiasm? So when it's just driven by the wish to achieve, with all discipline and all of that, it doesn't turn out very well. Because you can't even relax because you don't know how to relax because even that is goal-driven. How did I do? I just worked on relaxation for 60 minutes. On a scale of 1 to 10, how was that? Not sufficient. That pisses me off. I'll try harder next time. I'll try harder to not try at all. Uh, let's see, how do you do that again? I forget. <laughs> so... In one's daily practice, if you keep on coming back, just you know, one way or another, whether it's through refuge, through guru yoga, through bodhicitta, the four measurables, through understanding, if you keep on coming back to just the contentment 
the rejoicing, the sense of gratitude, not pointed necessarily to any one person, to me or anybody else, but just gratitude, how wonderful it is that right now, I'm practicing Dharma. And whatever happens five seconds from now, I'm not quite sure, I don't know. But right now, that's it. That was a good two seconds. That was a really good two seconds. Mm-hmm. What I found over the years and years is whether it was the one-year retreat 23 years ago at Gemma or many other retreats before and after, what I've generally found is those people who proceed through the, through the retreat with a sense of gratitude never goes wrong. They never have a really bad retreat. No matter what. And I'm not, I'm not referring, I think you already know, but I'll say it anyway, I'm not referring to gratitude to me or to Genlam Rimbo or any, any particular target. It's just, oh, how wonderful I had this opportunity. And if there's a teacher, my thank you to the teacher. If there's people who built a retreat center, thank you for the people who built a retreat center. For the staff, thank you for taking such good care of us. Thank you all the Buddhas, all the Bodhisattvas, thank you all sentient beings for directly or indirectly being, making it possible for me just to focus single point and practice. Thank you everybody with no exception. As long as there's that spirit of gratitude, the practice never goes badly. Whether it goes fast or slow, oh, that depends on many factors. But as soon as that's gone, and the enthusiasm is gone, and the lightness is gone, and the joy is gone, and the sweetness is gone, it's tough going. It's really tough going. So as much as you can, please keep on coming back. And insofar as you have that confidence, come what may, no matter what happens, it's better to be more sane than less sane and to never give up on your own mind. Because it's really not like you have a spare. <laughs> or that you can, you know, like having a really cruddy car and say, you know, I'll just, what do you call it? Um, swap? That's a special word for that. Trade-in, yes. Nobody wants your mind. Even if you advertise and you could do it, I doubt that you'll find any takers. You know, it's it's really a seller's market. <laughs> everybody be happy, almost everybody be happy to sell their mind, but nobody really needs to buy, buy somebody else. You, you don't know, you know, just like with a car, you don't know its history, you don't know where it's been. <laughs> so there's no trade-ins, there's no spare. What you got is what you got. And you may as well do the best you can with it. And here's a word for like two weeks from now and two months from now. On those days when you, you sit down and practice, you say, this mind is just hopeless. I can't follow, I can't even count to three. I go, one, um, oh, one, one, um, it already sounds familiar, does it? Those seem kind of like little chuckles of familiarity to me. Even when like that, don't give up. And it doesn't mean just be sheer t- tenacity, and I will count to three, I will count to three. Maybe go for a walk. Maybe do some really meaningful reading. Maybe listen to some podcast or some recording, Dharma recording, CDs, DVDs, and sub-Dharma teaching, but something meaningful. It's not true that meditation is always the best answer for every question that comes up. 
Sometimes the mind is really not suitable for meditation. That's true. Certainly not for shamatha, not on all occasions. Which, which case, fine, good, now's not a time for shamatha. Well, how about it? Is it a time for Tonglen? Is it time for Mudita, reflecting upon the kindness of others? Is it a time for doing some reflective reading? Is it time for going for a mindful walk? Is it a time for going out and being of service to someone? Time for going out. You know? But there's always something meaningful to do. Always. Always. So never giving up. It's the only mind you've got. And it's your closest companion every day. Not only for the rest of your life, but if we really consider the daunting, absolutely daunting prospect that, you know, we're stuck with our minds forever, then it's worth ever, every investment, every investment, every bit of wisdom and compassion that we have to refine this mind. And if it takes a long time, it takes a long time. But better having a, a workable mind for a long time than a worthless mind, dysfunctional mind, indefinite. So, something like that. If you're going off to a shamatha retreat, now a very brief reiteration, and it'll be very, very brief. If you're going off from here to devote some weeks or months to a shamatha retreat, you know what to do. Let your shamatha be very central, other practice just to support it. Right? But if, like most of us here, you're not going from here off to a shamatha retreat, then I'd really encourage you, right off you know, from the very beginning, think more of balance. Ah, and this I think is, is the final point for this, for this little bout. And that is not to evaluate your practice, your overall spiritual practice, by the criterion of shamatha. Overall, how are you doing? I'm in stage two. Oh, that's a terrible, that's brutal. That's really brutal. It's unkind and it's not realistic to evaluate, oh, I'm in stage two or I'm in stage four. Maybe you're on stage four because you're a sniper. You know, I mean, really, I mean, snipers have, have to have very good concentration. So maybe they're on stage four, but really, like, so what? So you're a really good sniper. You can kill more people in a shorter period of time. Because your stability and vividness is really good. You know? Or maybe you're really good because you're an athlete, and now you can run and catch balls faster. Or hit, you know, tennis balls faster, better, more accurately. There's nothing wrong with that. But because you're a really good tennis player, therefore you're a good Dharma practitioner? I don't think so. And so, as we consider this whole issue, this large, large issue of evaluating our own spiritual practice, it is important, not in the sense of being judgmental, but just being smart, intelligent, informed, and not just practicing any old dharma that comes along, thinking, oh, it's all the same anyway. Well, it certainly is not. There are excellent teachers, mediocre, poor teachers, teachers that are appropriate for your own background or disposition, others who are not so much. And so, to evaluate with all the wisdom we can bring to bear, how our practice is going. It's a very meaningful thing to do, a very important thing to do. But it's equally important not to let it all hinge just on shamatha. That's just one strand. Important, but just that. And if, if we're going back, for as most of us are, to a socially engaged way of life, then this think that we're going to maintain in three weeks the level of stability, vividness, relaxation that we had last week is just overall not very realistic. But then should we then be, therefore, be depressed? Well, that would be silly. Why set ourselves up for guaranteed depression? Right? And so, especially for those of us going back to a more active way of life, then to have a broader sense, a broader sense, as we look back on these eight weeks, and as, as we look forward to the unfolding of our practice from, from wherever we are and wherever we are, 
to consider much more than relaxation, stability, and vividness. So let's contextualize this a little bit. If we, cons- if we consider that any type of Dharma practice, whether it's Hindu, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, or what have you, any kind of Dharma practice is much more than a technique. Reciting the Lord's Prayer, or the Jesus Prayer, the Centering Prayer, or Sufi meditations, or etc., etc., it's more than technique. It's always more than technique. So if we just come back to Buddha Dharma, then we have this framework that is enormously meaningful to me. I just find it to like a very deep well. I keep on going back to and drawing from it again and again. And that is, what kind of an impact is your Dharma practice having on you as a human being? Right? Well, shamatha is one element. Good. Good. But now let's take back zoom lens to the wide angle, the big picture. And here's the framework, and I've mentioned it before, but I think now is a good time to mention it again. And that is over the last seven weeks, and over the coming, as you, I'm sure none of, none of you started practicing Dharma seven weeks ago, but as the months and years go by, in the past and going into the future, as you're devoting yourself to practice, check, how is it influencing the way you're viewing reality? Not just your belief system, their beliefs are cheap, Right? But no, how is it actually influencing the way you are viewing reality, viewing other people, viewing yourself as a human being, viewing sentient beings in the society around you, viewing our planet Earth, the natural environment, viewing reality as a whole, viewing your dreams? How is it shifting your very perspective, your way of apprehending reality? Is it having any impact at all? If it's not, your practice is superficial. Really? What does it matter if it's not even influencing the way you're viewing reality? Then what's the matter? Right? So even if your shamatha is kind of low grade, you're finding your way, a very way of viewing reality is shifting. That's really significant. So there's one piece. And now in this Da Gong Chu view meditation way of life, the central, the, the middle one, after the view, the way you're viewing reality, is your meditation, your practice, not just shamatha practice, but how's your overall practice going, your formal practice, right? Whether it's bodhicitta, whether it's refuge, whether it's renunciation, whether it's guru yoga, whatever it may be, four applications of mindfulness, and so forth and so on, how is your overall practice doing? Is it maturing? Is it become wiser? Is it become more effective? And I'll put together right in that same category as your formal practice, your priorities, priorities, your values. As you're practicing, and the last seven weeks has gone by, has your list, your, your sense of priority shifted at all? Some things that were not so important, now more important. You know, your values. If there's been no shift, no impact, everything is absolutely status quo, I say, well, whatever your degree of stability and vividness is, I don't think this was a very, very transformative retreat. If it didn't influence at all what you value, Unless you just had such pristine renunciation about it before you came here that there was just no room for improvement. In which case, I congratulate you. You know? But for the rest of us, you know, there's always room to, to be, for it to be more authentic, more reality-based, more open-hearted, and so forth and so on. So priorities, shifting. And then, in this simple environment, I mean, it's so conducive, it really is a little bit like a pure land. So conducive. When we step out, and you've been home or wherever you're going for a week, for two weeks, four weeks, do you find any shift in your way of life? Any shift at all? Any difference? Or is it exactly the same routine, the same 
behavioral modes, patterns, habits that you had before you came here. Your way of engaging with other people. Any less of the I-it relationship? Any more of the kind of the I-you relationship? You know? Any more attentiveness in terms of the, the four immeasurables having their impact? And those flowing into your relationship with other people from encounter to encounter? You know? Any influence at all? If there isn't any influence at all, once again, even if you achieve stage five in seven weeks, I say, well, that was pretty trivial. So you're really concentrated to be a jerk. <laughs> or if you weren't a jerk, I mean, it's kind of a harsh term. But really, if that's all it did, is you really spiked up in shamatha, but it had no impact on anything else. The way you view reality, you engage with other people, the level, the kind of quality, the way you speak, the way you listen, and so forth had no impact, and say, that's pretty trivial. Pretty trivial. Right? And so those three. If we really want to have a rich and meaningful evaluation, how is the practice unfolding? See, check, to see how is it influencing the way I perceive myself. Am I any more accepting to myself? Or am I just as harsh and brutal and judgmental as ever? That's pretty harsh. Which is so common in the modern world. And maybe a little bit friendlier to myself. That'd be a good start. You know, that's shifting worldview. The way we're viewing ourselves. And viewing the, the mental afflictions and seeing them as mental afflictions rather than I am a schmuck. You know, that's, that's anger, that's selfishness, that's greed, that's anger, and so forth and so on. Yeah, they are. Okay? Not me. I'm getting over them. They're going to lose. Because I'm not going to stop until they're gone. That's a shifting of priorities. So, final point. You ready for the final, final point? <laughs> There's a theme that runs through the Mahayana teachings that I think is enormously valuable. One more that I find so many, so many are valuable. This is one of them. And that is, it's said for, compare it, 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 the issue here is our sensitivity towards our own mental afflictions. Our sensitivity towards our own mental afflictions. And it's said of an Arya Bodhisattva, that of an Arya Bodhisattva, that as a person who's more like ordinary person, like me, experience some mental affliction coming up, some anger coming up, some greed coming up, selfishness, jealousy coming up. It comes up and it feels like a, what is it? It feels like a, like a, like a hair in the palm of the hand. Like, oh, 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 there's a, oh, look at that, there's a hair in the palm of my hand. Pretty easy to bear. After all, who's perfect? You know, so I get angry once in a while, so I get selfish. Once in a while. Business, what do you expect? I'm human. You know, so kind of easy to bear. Because I don't expect much. Right? So for an ordinary person experiencing ordinary mental afflictions, oh, we get by. How was your day? I got really pissed off. I got really greedy and had to be shouting out. It was an okay day. Really not bad. You know? Hair in the, hair in the, hair in the palm of the hand. We get by. Hey, I'm just a, a primate. You know, prime, this is what we primates do. You know, chimps, baboons, gorillas, Californians. No, this is what we do. <laughs> So, no big deal. The same mental affliction that feels like a, a hair in the palm of the hand to an Arya Bodhisattva, the same same one, exactly, if you could do a, a, a mental affliction extract and put take from one mind and, you know, transplant over into the mind of the Arya Bodhisattva, that same mental affliction feels like a hair that's dropped into the eye. You can imagine. If hair drops into the eye, it, just, it totally captures your attention. I mean, you're not going to do anything until you get that hair out of your eyes. Wait a minute, wait a minute. World stop. You know, i got to get this hair out of my It's just totally captures your attention and it's utterly intolerable. 
And you're not going to do anything else until that hair is out of your eye. So don't be surprised, even if you don't step out of here as Arya Bodhisattvas. You know, that'll be one less line item on my resume. You know, Katinka did not become Arya Bodhisattva in my eight-week retreat. Okay, so I'm only mildly disappointed. Even if you don't step out of here as an Arya Bodhisattva, don't be terribly surprised if you find yourself more sensitive to the same old mental afflictions that you experienced eight weeks ago. No harsher, no coarser, no more powerful, pretty much the same ones, but considerably more intolerable. Like, this is not okay. This really hurts. This is, this isn't okay at all. I, I don't want to bring this mind into the public. It's embarrassing. It's like going out with dirty clothes. I don't show up in public like this. I'll stay home until my mind is a bit calmer. I won't speak. It's embarrassing. It's not appropriate. If I have to have mental afflictions, I'll keep them to myself. So that goes with the territory. I think all of you have actually experienced this over the last seven weeks, of finding somewhat greater sensitivity to the the rising falling of imbalances of the attention and so forth. As we grow in sensitivity, then we wind up willing to tolerate less within our own mind streams. Which is good. Keeps us motivated. At the same time, and this is enormously important, as we witness at least what certainly look like signs or expressions of other people's mental afflictions, as we've been practicing Dharma for eight weeks, and then we step out into the world where people have been practicing other things for eight weeks, make a living, just getting by, trying to survive, but not focusing on the mental afflictions, the, if you say excitation and laxity, they're kind of like, what's that? What's that? Doesn't register? It's very easy. It's very, very easy. When we see other people not devoting themselves to practice, and not even being particularly reserved about expressing their mental afflictions, to feel, oh, I'm one of the group of Dharma practitioners of the eight-week retreat, and you're clearly not. <laughs> we are Dharma practitioners, you are not Dharma practitioners. Uh, you can sit on a lower stool than me, because we are clearly a cut above. You know, We Dharma practitioners. And this is one of the, the things that really struck me very early on after I arrived in Zaramsala knowing I wanted to do this for the rest of my life, and I said, how do you do this? How do you devote yourself to Dharma and see to become, frankly, a better human being with less mental afflictions, less harmful behavior, greater virtues, and greater virtuous behavior? How do you do that and then not have this elevated sense of, I'm special, I'm superior, I'm better than you are in all the really important ways. Maybe I'm not as good-looking, but I have less mental afflictions. I have greater virtue. My mind is more sane, more stable, more balanced. Greater compassion, greater insight. All these things, I'm better than you are. How do we avoid that one? When your whole life is oriented around becoming better in exactly those ways, where many people are not focusing on those. They're trying to get more money, just pay the bills, raise their kids, get a good job, and so forth. So how do you avoid 
the sense of being superior. When you're seeking to become an Arya, and an Arya means one who's superior. That's what Arya means. Bhakta means superior, a cut above the ordinary. Because of your profound insight, right? How do you avoid feeling superior when you're striving to become superior and do become superior? How do you avoid that? And His Holiness told me the answer to that the very first time I ever met him one-on-one. Because I waited until I had what I felt was a meaningful question to pose to him because I didn't want to waste his time. This was back in 1971. So I waited. And then when I saw this coming up, as I'm a rank beginner, barely out of diapers in terms of dharma, and already after I'd been in Dharmsala for a month or two, and feeling, oh, I'm one of the old-timers. <laughs> I've been here for a couple of months. I can speak a bit of Tibetan. But you did it. So I thought, okay, if I'm feeling superior now and I'm still like, I'm basically out of diapers, how is this going to turn out 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now? Being a bigger and bigger arrogant jerk because I'm just so super duper. So I asked His Holiness and he responded. And that's when I knew that he was my guru. So I'll tell you the story and then we'll meditate. You've heard it. Many of you heard it. But not everybody. Not everybody knows what I'm going to say right now, right? I think, yeah, okay. Good. So that was my question to him. I waited for a couple of months until, because I was told I could have an interview, an audience with him, but I said, not until I have something. I don't want to just say, hi, I'm out. No, I want to have a real meaningful question. So that, but that really struck me as an important one. Because I didn't want to just become more and more arrogant. I was already arrogant enough. You know, way too arrogant. And so I thought, oh, if practice Dharma made me a little more arrogant, why don't I just stop right now? Oh, and I'm not going to stop, so what to do? So I asked him, how do you avoid this? How do you avoid that problem? And he gave me the, you know, he gave me the example. It sounds a little bit like the prodigal son, the lost prince, but there was no reference to that. But he gave me the example. He said, imagine that you're a beggar. Imagine you're a beggar. And you come to home knocking on the door. And you say, please, can you give me some food? I'm really, really hungry. And the owner of the house sees you, destitute, poor, impoverished, don't have, don't have, even have two paisa to push together. He said, welcome, come on in. We're just sitting down for, for our main meal. And join our family and enjoy the meal with us. And they've got a sumptuous feast. And they treat, they treat you like a family member. And sit you down, he says, the table's full of food. He says, have as much as you like. Join us, join us. And you sit down there and you eat and you eat and you enjoy the meal and you, you eat until you're just totally satisfied. Really yummy food, nice variety, balanced diet. He said, when you finish eating, you feel your tummy all food, totally satisfied. Do you then feel arrogant and proud? Wow, can I eat food? You know? You feel superior now to all those people who haven't had a good meal. They're still hungry. I gave the obvious, obvious answer. No, I wouldn't, in that situation, I wouldn't feel proud. No. He said, well, you're the same. He's very blunt. He said, you're the same. You came here. You flew around the world to come here because you're hungry. You're really looking for some nourishment, Dharma nourishment. And here you're being served. 
given a very, very big meal. And they, the Tibetans ask for virtually nothing. You, you remember what they, I don't know how many classes you attended in the library, but they, for one month of teaching from Yishinyo and Taige, master teacher, six days a week, the tuition for one month was three dollars. Six days a week, every day. It was three dollars. And that was to cover the, the cleaning costs of the room. Yishinyo was on a stipend from the government, I think. So three months, three dollars a month for just receiving a bounty, a banquet of Dharma teachings. So to say we paid anything, well, we just forget that. No, you just, you just paid for the dusting in the, in the halls. And so basically here we are coming to a refugee community. They'd only been out for 12 years. They're really poor. Right? And I'm coming from upper middle class California. Swimming pool, my own car, good education, etc., etc. I'm coming from that background. I'm coming here living with refugees, and they're offering free dharma. That was the only place we paid anything. When I went to Gesherapen, Kawakawa. To Sekonomachi, Kawakawa. Kumabashi, to, oh, They never charge anything. It never even comes up. Then Los Angasso started with him for a year and a half. Never gave him anything. Had nothing to give. So then how, really? Unless you're completely insane. How could you receive such a bounty of dharma? Do your best to eat it. That's all you've really got to do. Open your mouth, chew, swallow... How, why would it ever occur to you to feel you're superior when you receive virtually all of it for free? You may as well just say everything for free. And it was all done out of sheer kindness. And you get benefit from it. Why would you, why would that even come up? And he answered my question. And then you know that you really never can repay the kindness of your guru until you've achieved enlightenment. And all sentient beings are free. Then you can say, okay, now I've repaid the kindness. Until then, not yet. Not yet. Is it true? Let's meditate.
Amazonas. Here's a long one. So, please could you comment on the shamatha teachings that confirm Padmasambhava's therma that was revealed by Kamalingba in the Shito cycle of instructions on the six bhattas. So, this is translated in the book Natural Liberation. He introduces four methods, two with signs, two without signs. First one, visualize a white, luminous, transparent bindu located between one's eyebrows and the center of the forehead and focus only on that. Or, of course, in the sequence, I know pretty well, um, he introduces more than that. He, fo- he starts by saying, focus on a stick, a stone, or a flower. So something very easy to do. And then goes from there. So this is beyond that. So, how about that? Visualizing a white, luminous, transparent bindu, an orb of light located between your eyebrows, in the center of the forehead, focus solely on that. Uh, do that under, it's a, obviously it's an authentic practice, do that under, under only very very careful and wise supervision. Because that's just putting an enormous amount of prana into a very sensitive chakra. Um, and that could lead to a lot of problems if you do it incorrectly, and it can be very fine if you do it correctly. But it's not enough just to read the instructions and say, I got it, I understand that, and then bring the jackhammer of your attention right into the point before you, between your eyebrows and hammer away. Oh, I remember Lausanne, what was his name? That charlatan 40, 50 years ago. Lausanne. Lausanne Ramba, yeah. Third eye. I heard some European try to open his eye by putting a power drill right between his eyebrows. It's not a good idea. So this practice is authentic, but do it only... I, have, I haven't taught it because I couldn't leave here with a clear conscience that I did. At the end of eight weeks, you continue to practice that, decide you really like to go for it. What happens if really you get in, encounter big problems and I'm off in a six-month retreat or whatever? I couldn't help you. So I've tried to teach practices that I really feel confident you will not harm yourself with, with all the sequence we've done. And overall, I think it's really been true. People have not harmed themselves by these practices. So that's a very powerful one. Do it under careful and sustained supervision. Then first visualize your own body as a luminous and transparent light, body of light, similar to the way we usually visualize deities. And here we visualize a luminous red bindu in the heart center, or heart chakra, uh, the rim of which is blue. So yes, once again, now we're focusing on another powerhouse. This is like playing with nitroglycerin. You know, visualizing bindus in your heart chakra. It can be fantastic. Nitroglycerin can be very useful. You want to blow up things and, you know, build bridges and so forth. But to blow up your heart chakra is kind of awkward. So any intense visualization of the heart, I would say, handle with extreme care. Don't do it on your own. It's a bad idea. It actually is related to your heart organ. And I've known people to do really intense visualizations at their heart and develop arrhythmia and other heart problems and incredible tension, and so forth. So these are excellent practices. I have no criticism of the practices, but as soon as you start focusing on chakras, just make absolutely sure you have a very, very qualified teacher who's looking after you and for the whole time. Don't do it on your own. So bear in mind, this, this, this treasure teaching came out whenever it was. I've forgotten, 14th century, 15th, whatever it was. But it's coming out into a contemplative culture, you know, where... Pretty much everybody's got a relative who's a monk or a nun. And there's monasteries all over the place. And there are, you know, if not extremely highly, there are competent meditators around. So they wouldn't have to look very far to find someone who could give them good guidance in this. 
Uh, you go to a place like North America or Europe, not so common to find. And when there are really great llamas, it's not so easy to have easy access to them. So, handle with care. So here, now, without signs, look straight ahead and, and with your eyes slightly looking upward, but do not focus on, say, some, some object. Just let your gaze in space and keep resting your gaze in that open spaciousness without modification or involvement in any particular appearance. Well, actually, there are four phases to this. That's what I've been teaching all along. This is in the Shamadu without a sign, and this is the first phase of it. But that's just the preliminary. That it's just you, you recall it. I've taught it many times now, four cycles, where you start and you let your awareness rest in space with no object. But I won't go over that again. We've done that four, five, four, five, four, four cycles already. So is that a sufficient shamatha practice all by itself, just to go like that? No, it's a really good preparation. And then look downwards in the same manner, okay? But that's phase four, so that should be familiar. Okay, I've done that many times. I look downwards in the bare manner, only difference is the gaze is now centered and focused and so forth. So I think I've covered that. Um, if you want to see the connection, go through the podcasts of the shamatha without sign in four phases. Compare that to, to Padmasambhava's teachings in this text. And then you can see for yourself, 20-20 vision, whether I have misrepresented his teachings or unpacked it in a way that is helpful. But you will know, because that's exactly where those teachings come from. Okay? All clear. Then, because the visualizations of shamatha with signs are focused in the central channel, either at one's forehead or the heart center, do you think it might be helpful to collect the prana inwards away from the side channels by doing this slow down the thought process, slowly uh, and allowing the mind to settle in its natural state more early, and when you and when you move to shamatha without a sign, one can rest more easily in awareness of awareness. Sure, that's why he taught them, uh, that's why he taught them first. This whole sequence, again, starting with a stick, stone, or a flower, and then moving, moving, moving to these chakras, and then finally culminating in the four modes, sequential, of awareness, shamatha without a sign, and of course, really, the culmination of that is you just come back to the center and you just rest there until you achieve shamatha. So are these earlier phases, are they very helpful for, pre- for preparation? Definitely yes. But again, I'll just say it again, anytime you start really focusing intensely, your, te- your, your mind and therefore your prana in any chakra, you are dealing with something that's very powerful. And you really can do yourself damage, and it's a lot easier, as I said before, a lot easier to damage your whole prana system than it is to repair it after it's damaged. That's why I've not even touched those. Okay? So, what we've done is always come back to mindfulness of breathing. It's really hard to damage yourself by settling your body, speech, and mind in natural state and gently following the breath. It's possible, but mostly probably you just wind up dull. Worse things have happened. You know? And that hasn't tended to be a big problem. And then the other two practices as well. So, I have... Out of a wide variety of shamatha practices, I've chosen three, highlighted three, uh, that are very mainstream Buddhism, so it's not just my favorites, like vanilla or chocolate. Uh, they're very, very central. The first one to the whole Theravada tradition, to early Buddhism. The other two, especially to the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions, but practiced in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and also at least resonant with the Shikantaza and the Sazen of the Zen tradition quite compatible. So I've, ta- I've taught in multiple Zen temples around in North America. We find them very, very compatible. So that's it. That's why I've chosen the ones I have chosen. The chances of harming yourself are very, very small. Chances of getting benefit quite big. So there we are. Please comment on the sequence in relationship to what we've been practicing here using the breath, settling the mind and awareness of awareness. 
So that's it. If we were all in a, I say, in a contemplative observatory, and you all came here to spend the next year or two or five or ten, you know, living here, then, and I'm living here also, I'm not globetrotting all over the place, uh, we're just all living here. In other words, it's basically a contemplative monastery. Oh, then why not? You know, if I were really a qualified teacher and all of that, or at least we had access to a qualified teacher, then sure, then take all the steps one by one. And if people start having problems, any kind of mm, imbalance is starting to show up at the heart, any kind of weird sensations happening up here, you're right there. Right, you've got a really qualified teacher right there. That would be really good. But we're here for eight weeks. And then, the big dispersion. So I've done my best to give practices that you won't harm yourself. That's why we've not done all those sequences. Do you think the, in, the the counterpart sign will arise with the two methods of internal visualization? No. Uh, there's no reference to them. No reference to them. It's a different system. It's a different system. So as soon as you're dealing with chakras, are there signs? Yes, there are signs, but they're not counterpart signs relating to form realm. Different system. So here you want to kind of honor the integrity of each system, one dealing with chakras and so forth, the comings of the, comings of the uh, prana into the central channel, into the heart chakra, into the indestructible bindu, oh, a whole bunch. There's a lot to be said there in stage of completion teachings about the different signs that arise, but these are not the counterpart signs of the form realm. Way beyond that. Okay? Oh, yeah. So you mentioned when translator Magisha Rappan in California that some of his long-term students became, oh, not Magisha Rappan, uh, that was, uh, that was Gyatra that some of his students became dissatisfied with their practice and responded, and he responded that they lacked faith in themselves. Sure, I mean, just people, not that they were rising revolt, but you know, people have been practicing 20, 30 years, and just feeling that they kind of had hoped that they would be further along the path while they're living full-time jobs and coming for maybe once in a while, once a week teachings and expected somehow maybe more. Although on the other hand, I don't know of anybody who goes out golfing once a week and expects to get on the pro circuit. So, so the in our... Contemplative, contemplatively primitive modern society. The criterion for regarding oneself as a serious meditator is like in terms of a high bar, you know, like in track and field, like two meters and so forth. The bar is something that an earthworm could get over. <laughs> it just kind of reaches up on its back and one quarter of a centimeter. I'm a serious meditator because I practice 15 minutes a day at least three times a week. I have heard this. You know, oh, I'm a serious meditator. I, every year I go on one 10-day retreat. I'm serious. So, so, but he did say, it's because they lack faith in themselves. Is this due to the obscuration of doubt and certainty? I don't think it's that simple. It's a very perfectly good question. It's from Deborah. Very, really, utterly legitimate question. Um, well, let's, let's just shift this over to another culture, a very contemplative culture, let's say Tibet 1940. So, before the Chinese invasion, the communist invasion, and so forth. Are the Tibetans who lack faith in themselves? Sure. Sure. There's a, one of the very common things among very traditional Tibetans that I've encountered on occasion, 
Ich weiß nicht, was ich Gilo Pelelo, Marewe. Gilo Pelelo. And that is self-deprecating laziness. And that is when seeing the fine, the great geshes, the kempos, the lamas, the tukus, the eminent lamas, and, you know, the children who are born as prodigies, and then the monks devoting themselves and so forth. And, you know, ordinary lay people, or just ordinary monks, saying, oh, I'm not a tuku, I'm not a rinpoche, I'm not a geshe, I'm nothing special. I would, if even I tried to meditate, I wouldn't get anywhere because I'm, I'm nothing special. I'm just an ordinary person. So I won't meditate because I know degenerate times. But it's wonderful those great tukus do it. But I'll just stay home and eat my tsamba and add a little bit more butter to my tea. Because I'm just an ordinary person. Kapsuchi! <laughs> so this kind of thing, I've seen it also among Westerners sometimes, of so exalting the lamas and then deprecating themselves at the same time. Especially we Westerners, you know, we Westerners not being tukus, not even having nice skin color. <laughs> now at least we, if, at least, anyway, like, like Rosa has nice Tibetan color skin. That's better. But pinkies like Anil Anila were hopeless. We don't look like Tibetans at all. You know, Gomar, they call us red, they call us redheads because, you know, pink. We're not even white with pink. You know. So, but they're Tibetan like that too. And then there are Westerners. I think plenty of Westerners. Oh, I can't really meditate. I mean, I'm not like my Lama. My Lama is omniscient. My Lama is a Tuku. He's incarnation of such and such. He's incredible. But, oh, I'm nothing special. That's that's true on the one hand. On the other hand, this can be just a total excuse for never getting around to serious practice oneself. And it happens all the time in the Tibetan tradition. People never really meditating. Oh, I'm the ordinary person. I'm an ordinary person. Blah, blah, blah. Of course you are. That's because you keep on telling yourself you're an ordinary person and you don't meditate. And so it's not that, it's not just that. But now at least the Tibetans, traditional Tibetans, before the, you know, the cataclysm of the 20th century, at least they were in, a, in a, an environment and such, I mean, it was actually a unique environment. I don't, I think literally, objectively, there was no more, or even, there was no culture on the planet, society on the planet, that had such a an emphasis on the contemplative life, on the spiritual life generally, but the contemplative life. I don't think anywhere. I mean, if we put the cluster of them together, Bhutan and northern Nepal and North Ladakh and so forth, that, that Tibetan area, there's no, no place like that on the planet. And so in that context then, for example, in speaking with one of my root gurus, Saki Damana, one of her uncles achieved rainbow body. Now, how many of you, any uncles? <laughs> any aunts? You know? you know? I mean, when it's an uncle, and nobody think, oh yeah, your uncle, yeah, my, my great-grandfather, he achieved it. Oh, my, oh, my, my brother, he's off in a 20-year retreat. Oh yeah. You know, it's, just, it's not that far away. And so you have examples. You have examples within your own family, your community, or great lamas will pass through your village. And so you see so many sources of inspiration. And you find people like Geshe Rapni. He was just a farm boy. He was just really an ordinary farm boy. No tuku, no nothing, no nothing special. Geshe Ngam Taigi, Gen Lam Rimba, Gen Shambo Wondu, probably Lama Wondu, Mikse Yomarwa, nothing special. But then through their practice, through their practice, and then you see what kind of practice. Oh, boy. When I asked Geshe Rapni for his life story, then I said, oh, that's how a person really practices. I've never met anybody in the West who practiced like that. Anything. Neuroscience, physics, chemistry. I've never seen that dedication from anybody 
ever, when I saw the dedication that he put in from the age of 19 through his completing his final examination, because I asked him, how did you get your degree? What was the nature of your monastic education? It blew me away. I thought, oh, then I have to check over that. I have to do that too. But that's the best life you can possibly lead. And so, when you're, when you're living in a culture where this is, there really are contemplatives and really highly realized people and not that far away, that just in the background gives you the sense, well, you know, why couldn't I? Why couldn't I? Whereas when you're in a, living in a society like, like modern Europe, North America, pretty much any major city in the, in the world these days, um, we don't have those kind of examples. We don't really have many other people to inspire us who are like ourselves. When a person like His Holiness Dalai Lama comes to Mexico City, he's fantastic, incredibly inspired people. But he's also so different. You know, he's a Tibetan. He's the Dalai Lama. He's emanation of Avalokiteshvara. So, while enormous inspiration, how much can we really feel, oh yeah, well, he achieved it, why couldn't I? And here, Lingana Rinpoche is his teacher, Tijana Rinpoche is his teacher, identified when he's two and a half, recognized people from the past life, and I'm thinking, what did I do? I peed over the head of my doctor. It's <laughs> my only claim to fame when I was born. It's, it's true, that was my big sign when I was born. Peed over the head of my doctor. So, it's kind of like no competition. Dujum Lingba having visions of Dakinis and visiting the pure land of Padmasambhava. And I did pee over the head of my doctor. So that's all I can come back to, is I just peed over the head of my doctor. It's not very inspiring even to me. And so in that regard, it's not just a matter of doubt, but like, why should we believe? Why should we believe that an ordinary person like any of us here could really achieve? Well, that is the reason. Right? I think that's the reason. And of course, in terms of just faith in the Dharma, faith in ourselves, faith that we have put in nature, we have to learn this. I mean, I didn't encounter it until I was 20, that whole notion. And some of you later than that. And so it's really acquired knowledge by becoming rather relatively late in life. And that's two decades of not believing that. And so it comes later, whereas the Tibetans born into Tibet, or Bhutanese nowadays, people living in parts of Nepal nowadays, they're raised with this. I mean, the children, you know, they, they learn from the very beginning, you have a Buddha nature. I mean, all sentient beings have a Buddha nature. And so then the faith comes in very, very early. And it, it's just normal. Like, you and I believing in electricity. Have you ever really seen electricity? You know, but we all believe in electricity. We believe in gravity. How often have you seen gravity? And so there are things that are just, you know, we don't have to stretch. We don't, we don't really have any big qualms about, does electricity exist or not? I've never seen it. Who's seen it? Shall I believe it? No. So I think for those various reasons, doubt and uncertainty come in, but everything I've just said. So how can we maintain faith, momentum, and enthusiasm for our shamatha practice and for ourselves once we leave, both in retreat and back in working life? I'm glad at least you didn't say back in the real world. <laughs> Everybody's learned better than that by now. I think. Yeah. One could spend a... Oh, it's already said past six. My goodness. Okay, but these are short. I did the long one today. That's true, isn't it? My goodness. Okay, no, it's eight past six. Okay, these will be for tomorrow. Short answer. Um, I could I, I could speak at length about it. I can speak about length about anything. <laughs> My address, you know, under <laughs> about nine to eight robo. There's a whole story behind that. The simple answer is 
I think when we see the alternative is not even worth considering. That's it. Am I satisfied to have a mind that is uptight, scattered, and dull? Am I, ha- am I satisfied with the status quo? Do I, if I envision a good life, a satisfying life, can I envision that while I'm holding this status quo? What are the opposite of the four measurables? Is that satisfactory? Is there any way to imagine flourishing, living a filling and happy, rich life with other sentient beings? And say, yeah, but those four measurables, they're too hard. I, d- I don't resonate with that. But I'm going to have great relationships anyway. Because self-centered attachment, grief and despair, frivolous joy and cold indifference work for me. So this is baseline. This is not the whole of Dharma, but I think it is, my sense is this is a balanced way to start. If we're starting, and often when I'm leading a retreat, here's where I'll start. Those two. Because if one is cognitive, kind of mind, cognitive, shamatha, the other one very much from the heart, the four measurables. And moreover, it doesn't require any big leap of faith, really any belief at all. I mean, try it, see whether it works, whether it's helpful. But there's a baseline. Now there's so much more beyond that. But it's in terms of a place, kind of a foundation, a cornerstone. How about start here? Three qualities of shamatha or the opposite. The four immeasurables or the opposite. And if you, if, if there's just no debate in the mind, you know, and a very clear sense, there is absolutely no way that I'll find the happiness that I seek with a mind that is prone to attentional imbalances and the opposite of the four immeasurables. There's no way. I can live for a thousand years and I'll be as unhappy a thousand years from now as I was. 50 years ago, and there'll be no movement. Because samsara doesn't improve on its own. The mind doesn't become healthy just by getting older. And we all know that. The older we are, the better we know that. And so when one sees there's really no meaningful alternative. That's just for starters. And then as we start to get the taste, start to get the competence, start to get some experience, see that it's not just samsara sucks, but the dhamma is sweet. We see for our experience. And then giving ourselves all the support we can for that. It's difficult to practice in total solitude, surrounded by people who think what you're doing is strange or stupid. It's difficult. Tibetans never had to deal with that. If you didn't practice dharma, that was strange or stupid. We're surrounded in a world where making money, getting ahead, pounding away, that's considered to be really smart. And so, having Dharma friends. And if you don't have any locally, you can give a hug. Then have them virtually. Give them a virtual hug. You know, email, that kind of connection. Skyping, Facebook, all that kind of stuff. But having a sense of community. Having a sense that you are not alone. You are supported. That you can, people you can talk about, you can talk Dharma with. You know? Having some access to a teacher, one or more. Be very helpful. Having times when you just devote yourself to nothing other than dharma. That is not always trying to do dharma, samsara, dharma, samsara. Sometimes just, okay, one day a week, one day a month, whatever it can be, just for dharma. All of those ways. That's it. Then life actually becomes simpler and simpler. It's not to say that other activities are irrelevant. 
or meaningless. It is to say they are relevant and meaningful only insofar as they're part of your Dharma practice. And that's taking out the trash, changing your baby's diapers, going out for a movie. Not a bad movie. You know, a movie that's entertaining and wholesome. Why not? All makes sense, all meaningful when it's in the context of Dharma. And without Dharma, nothing. Oh, yeah. Enjoy your meal. See you a bit later. <laughs>